right, Ephesians chapter number two this morning, and uh, the title of my message today is, is called, We Are Family. We Are Family. So I said in the first service this morning, I'm going to date myself by saying this, but what comes to my mind with that sermon title is the song, <laughs> yeah, y'all know that, y'all, y'all dirty dogs, We Are Family. I got all my sisters in me, right? And all these young folk are saying, that's not in my playlist. What is he talking about? Well, I asked my wife this morning, um, I said, I was telling her the title of my message. I said, tell me, I said, is that cool in the gang? And, uh, and she said, no. She said, that is Sister Sledge. And, and I said, well, I don't know the difference, but honestly, it troubles me that you know who that is. So anyway, this morning, we're going to look from Ephesians 2, we are family. It's not a communion text necessarily, it's a text about church unity. But what illustrates church unity any better than observing the Lord's Supper? And that's what we're going to do this morning here on Mother's Day. Ephesians 2, let me give you just an introduction as we read beginning in verse number 11, just a couple of verses to get us started. Ephesians 2 verse 11, wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. So may God add his blessings today as we look at we are family. I remember a couple of years ago, I was sitting in a worship service in another city in a fairly large church of several hundred, maybe even 1,500, 1,800, maybe as many as 2,000 people. It was a large congregation there that day. And when I came into the auditorium, we were given communion cups like this that you've received today. We started doing that here at Highland Park during COVID using this kind, and maybe one of these days we'll go back the way we used to serve it. But nonetheless, the worship service that I was in, that's the way they were partaking of communion that morning. And uh, I sat there in my seat, and I had the communion cup in my hand, and I listened to the beautiful songs, and they were songs that were honoring Christ and exalted the Lord and edified the body, and it was just very inspirational. I listened to the sermon, and it was so good. It was very clear, very biblical, very practical, very relevant, and just so very good. And then I thought to myself, now we'll get the instructions about Uh, taking communion and reading the scriptures and talking a little bit about that. And to my surprise, those instructions never came. And I don't tell you this to be critical, not at all. That's not my intent. But my, my feeling was as important as something like communion is, it can't just simply be a postscript, postscript to everything else that we do. It should be, it should be part of what we are doing because There's no way that we should just assume that everyone understands the significance and the value of observing the Lord's Supper. Do you know taking the Lord's Supper is not something that should be optional for Christians? It is one of the two ordinances of the church. And when we talk about an ordinance, that's an order from God. And God says that there should be a regular time that believers participate in observing the Lord's Supper. And that's why we try to have set times throughout the year to give you that opportunity to commune with God as you take the bread and as you take the cup. 
Even if it were true that we all understood the significance of communion, we still need a time where we look back in our past to where we were before we were saved, where we look deep into the future at where we will be with the Lord Jesus one of these days, but we also take this time to look deep within our own heart and life to make sure everything is right with God and we are where we should be with Him. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 2, as I said, it's not necessarily a text about communion. It is a text about uh, about church unity. And communion illustrates the beauty of church unity. Let me give you the background of why Paul was writing the book of Ephesians. He was writing this with a background that was filled with prejudice and bigotry. The Jewish people who became Christians resented everybody who was outside their ethnic faith community. You see, the Jewish people who became Christians carried with them into their newfound Christian faith all of the traditions of Old Testament Judaism. And they felt like since they were the apple of God's eye and they were God's chosen people and they had the priesthood and they had the temple sacrifices and they had all of these advantages, uh, Moses wrote the Ten Commandments who was Jewish, all of these things that the Jewish people had, then they kind of resented anybody else who had come into their fellowship who were not Jewish. And then on the other side, what you had were Christians, uh, who, uh, people who had gotten saved, who were not Jewish. They were be called Gentile Christians or non-Jewish Christians. And then just like the Jewish people, these non-Jewish Christians would carry into their Christian experience traditions and, and, and cultural um, uh, loyalties that they held on to. For example... A Jewish person uh, would be what's called monotheistic. They believe in one God, the God Jehovah of Israel. The Christians who were Gentiles were coming out of first century Roman culture, and they believed in, uh, they were not, um, uh, uh, did not believe in just one God. They were not monotheistic. They were polytheistic. They believed in a myriad of gods. In fact, the Roman pantheon of gods had 12 primary deities, you know, Zeus and Athena and Hera and Poseidon and many, many others, not counting the goddesses and the demagogues and all of that that was part of Roman and Greek culture. So Gentile believers who became believers, they came into the church at Ephesus. They felt one way. Jewish people who were saved, they felt another way. And there was this wrangling inside the church at Ephesus. The Jewish people believed that you had to be circumcised in order to be truly saved. The Gentile Christians said no, that it is through Christ alone that you are saved. So when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he is writing to, to satisfy uh, the, the, the conflict and to resolve the conflict that was taking place within the church. Uh, Paul writes this to say that it is through Christ alone that a person is made right with God. That it is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing. It is the power of God to salvation to everybody who believes, Jew first and also the Greek. So cultural traditions, backgrounds were playing a big part, and Paul was trying to put all of that down to say the main thing is your focus and your belief in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. So what I want to do today is just as Paul reminded his listeners to look back to their past, where they used to be, 
to look at their present now, to see what Christ has done in their lives, and then look at their eternal future of their home and glory with the Lord, uh, as, and to use that as a motivation to say, we are not, we are not separate individuals, um, we are a family when we come together to worship. So I want to use his words to get us to look at our past, to get us to look at our present, and to look at our future to say, here we are at Highland Park, here some 2,000 years after this was written, but we are still, I want you to know, friends, we are the family of God. We may have different backgrounds, we may be different ages, we might all have different likes and dislikes, but one thing as Christians that we all have in common, and that is we trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? And because of that, we are family. We are the family of God that is beautifully played out as we take the communion elements here in a little while. So first of all, if you take notes, I want you to jot down, and even more than jotting down, I want you to put it on the sticky side of your brain. I want you to remember this. First of all, remember where you were before you met Christ. Remember where you were, I don't mean physical location, I mean in your life, in your lifestyle. Remember where you were, what you were like, and, and, and how you lived before you met Christ. In verse number 11, you see the word wherefore. It's a transitional word. It links everything that he's going to say in verse 11 and following with everything that he's already said beginning in this second chapter. Notice the description of where we were before we met Christ. Go back to verse number 1. And you may want to underline these. I counted four of them. Uh, in verse number one, he says, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, that's every one of us. That's the listeners in Paul's day. That is us here today at Highland Park. Without Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Look in verse number two. He says, you walked according to the course of the world. There was no... Denying self, taking up your cross and following me is what Jesus said. There was none of that. It was everyone walked according to the dictates of their own human flesh, the way the world was guiding and leading and directing. And that's where we were, and that's who we were, uh, were before we met Christ. And then if you go to verse number three, he says, you fulfilled the desires of the flesh. That is the cravings, the appetites of the, of the fleshly part of us we're being satisfied by, uh, by our own desires of a life outside Christ. And then number four is also found in verse three. He says, by nature you are the children of wrath. So that's not a, a glowing resume that we have. Those are not positive qualities. But yet that is the condition of everybody who does not know Christ. That's the condition of us before we were saved. So he says, wherefore, based on all of these principles, he said in the next word, I want you to remember. Remember. It comes from a Greek word that means to hold to memory, to have an awareness of the past that will make you appreciate the present and what God has done for you. It doesn't simply mean to say, oh yeah, I'm going to catalog this in my memory. No, but to remember means that you have an awareness of what we used to be like and what we used to be like motivates us to live differently for the present. For example, Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. And when he said that, listen, 
He was looking into the faces, into the eyes of his men seated around that supper table. And he was looking at every one of their lives that represented all of the human family, and he saw the brokenness in their lives. And just as they were broken, we all are broken. We are a broken race of the human family. We deal in broken lives. We deal in broken relationships. We deal with broken marriages. Jesus was seeing all the broken situations that bring pain into a person's life, that bring hardship into a person's life. He sees all the brokenness that brings hurt into a person's life. And he is like, I'm going to be this bread that will bring healing to the brokenness that you have experienced. And he pictures, he pictures all of us outside Christ who were, who were dead in trespasses and sins, who were walking according to the course of the world, who were satisfying the cravings of our own lives, and he says that results in a brokenness in your life. But he's come, he says, to repair that. He saw lives that were broken by sin, bodies that were broken by sickness, relationships that were broken by bitterness, that needed to be healed, and he saw tears that needed to be wiped away, and he saw sin that needed to be forgiven. And before we met Jesus, every single one of us were dead in our sins, walking according to the course of the world, satisfying those desires. In fact, he goes on, and really, he stabs us awake with an even more vivid um, picture of what we were like. Go to verse number 12, and you might want to underline these. This is what we were like before we met Christ. He said that at that time, you were without Christ. That is, they were, they were Christless. He said you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel or excluded from the citizenship of Israel. That means they were stateless. He says, you were strangers from the covenant of promise. That is, they were friendless. Having no hope, they were hopeless. Without God, they were godless. Can you imagine a more desperate, a more depressing, discouraging list that would be a resume for us walking according to the course of the world? dead in our trespasses and sins, without Christ, without hope, without God, without a friend. Can you imagine a miserable existence like that? But yet that's where we were before we met Christ. Let me ask you some questions this morning. I'll ask you three very quick questions, all right? You don't have to answer these out loud, but in your own heart before the Lord, answer these. First of all, what would you do if God excluded you from his family? What would you do if God just excluded you from his family and said, no, you're, you're not welcome and you can't be part of my forever family? Secondly, where would you go if God had not made salvation possible for you? Thirdly, where would you be if God were not willing to offer you eternal life, we would all be hopeless, Christless, friendless, godless, 
headed to eternal separation from God, but I want you to know the very fact that you have been invited by God to take the bread and the cup and to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, the very fact that you've been offered to come as the family of God and be part of that tells me that you never have to worry about answering any of those questions because we're part of His family. He is the head and he has invited us to come to the table and to take the cup and to take the bread. Now, when we come to take communion, there are two primary concerns that we have to address. You know, we know this is a reverent time. We know that it's a sacred time. I already mentioned to you that this is one of the ordinances of the church. The word ordinance means to order. So God has ordered this. We know that it is not optional, that it is something that every believer should do, should practice, and it should be part of our lives. But when we approach this time in our service where we take the elements... There are two dangers that we have to deal with. One is the danger of feeling too unworthy to partake of the communion elements. Have you ever felt that way? I know many times when when deacons are uh, nominated in our church family and asked to serve as a deacon, many of them over the years have said to me, I just feel unworthy. I just feel unworthy. And, 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 you know, if they felt worthy, they would be disqualified to be a deacon, I guess, right? But they just have that sense of humility. I just feel so unworthy. I feel that way about being a pastor. I certainly don't feel like, um, um, I feel like there's lots of people that could do a much better job. But anyway, we approach the table of, of communion, and you can feel just such a sense of, of being unworthy. Because oftentimes what the devil will do is he will bring everything in your past up. And he will show you everything and talk to you about everything that would disqualify you to take the communion elements. And as you hold that wafer and as you're ready to take that cup, you think, I'm just too unworthy. And the devil will say that. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. I had a pastor friend of mine. He's passed away now, been dead for a number of years. But he had a failing in his life during his ministry, and he left the ministry, and he was a wonderful Christian man, but just made some mistakes. But during the remainder of his Christian life, would never take communion again, because he felt so unworthy. And his unworthiness led him to a sense of despair. Now maybe you're here today, and you feel a sense of being unworthy to take communion, Don't let that lead you to a sense of despair because I want you to know the great invitation from God to you is that he wants you to come, do this self-examination, ask him to, to, to forgive you of your sins and to come to his family around his table and to take these communion elements. So the first one is the feeling of being unworthy. But the second one is the sense of feeling worthy. This would be the person who would feel as though, well, I've been in church all my life. I've taught Sunday school. I give financially to the work of the church. I've been here longer than maybe anybody else in the church, and I deserve it. And I've earned the right to be able to take communion. Listen, that is presuming on the grace of God. That is an arrogant, that is a prideful position. You see, for those, for those who may feel unworthy, their memory is too long. And for those who may feel worthy, their memory is too short. 
And they, they have this feeling now that, that yes, I'm going to do this because I deserve it. But listen, both of those perspectives are wrong or incorrect. That's maybe a better word. You say, now, Pastor Darrell, how can both of those be incorrect? If I can't be feeling worthy, then that means I'm going to be unworthy. If I don't feel unworthy, that means I'm, I'm worthy. How can both of those be incorrect? Well, I'm glad you ask. What does God really want from us when we take communion? He is not asking that you try harder. He is not asking that you promise to do more. You know what he's asking from us when we come to the communion table? He's asking that in your heart of hearts you remember where you would be if it were not for his amazing grace that lifted you up out of the miry clay and set your feet upon a rock and established your going. He wants you to look at these communion elements with great gratitude to say, God, if it were not for your grace in my life, I would still be dead in my sins, without hope, without Christ, without God. It's destined for an eternal separation from you. Listen to what the psalmist said. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth and show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifice of God, listen carefully, or a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise these. Here's what God is wanting. He's wanting us to come to take these communion elements with humility recognizing that we're not worthy to take them, nor should we be unworthy to take them, because Christ is the only one who is worthy. And Christ has made us worthy. And we take these elements in Christ's name because we who were dead in our sins have been, the Bible says in verse 1, made alive, quickened in our spirit, made alive by His grace we are saved. So where were you before you met the Lord? Lost, dead in sin, walking after the course of the world, without hope, without God, without Christ, without a friend. Secondly, remember now the difference that Christ has made in your life. After that long list of negative things that he gives us in verses 11 and 12, look how it changes in verse number 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometime were far off, look at this now, are made nigh or brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at this, no longer far away from God, but now close to God. You know, really, that's why we celebrate communion. That's one of the reasons we celebrate communion. Because we're not aliens from God. We're not separated from him any longer. We've been, we've been reconciled to him. We've been brought near to him. No longer far away, but now reconciled to God. No longer Christless. Look at that. No longer hopeless. No longer friendless. No longer godly. Godless. So what a beautiful picture of God coming to us and extending his grace in Christ. Regardless of how far away you were, the grace of God can reach there. And bring you to his family. The Bible says where sin did abound, the grace of God does much more abound. And the shed blood of Christ on Calvary's cross is sufficient to wash away all of our sins and all of our guilty stains. So never forget, there's not one single thing that any of us could do to make our lives right with God. Not one. Not good deeds. Not good efforts. 
not good intentions. The only thing that can make us right with God is having a relationship with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Accepting what He did on the cross of Calvary as payment for our sins. That's why He says in verse 14, He is our peace. Look at this. Who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. What was the context? Jews and Gentiles, they were arguing over their traditional, tr traditional backgrounds that they brought in. Jews monotheistic, uh, the Gentiles primarily polytheistic. The Jews say you have to be circumcised. The Christian said that the Gentile says you do not. And Paul is trying to get all of this sorted out from them. And he is saying that what Christ does when he brings us into his family is all of these things that separate us are torn down. And that what we have in common is, a, is that we're part of a family of faith. Now, I mean, you think, about, you think about all the things that could divide us in the church. Some people may like one style of music. Some people may like another style of music. Uh, some people may like, uh, they might, might like a high volume in, their, in, their, in the music. Some might like low volume. Some might want the preacher to, uh, to be very mild and meek and just, just teach very quietly. Others, man, they want a rip snorter, right? And a runner. Some might like, you know, banjos and fiddles. And some might like the electric guitar. Some might like the sanctuary 70 degrees, and some might like it 72. Some's not going to like it no matter where it's at. But anyway, <laughs> that's, that's another sermon for another day. There's so many things that could divide us. Well, somebody parked where I usually park, or somebody's sitting where I usually sit. Or the last time we had a meal, somebody didn't put the right amount of chili in my bowl, and I know that guy just don't like me, and he did that on purpose. Nobody would do that on purpose. But you see how that works. And there are many, many things that could divide us. That's what was happening in the lives of the church at Ephesus. And there was this wrangling for power, wrangling for position. And what it was doing was strangling the church. And the Apostle Paul comes to say, listen, you are majoring on the minors. And those things don't really matter. What really matters is that we believe the gospel, the power of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that welds us together into a family. And though we might have all kinds of tastes, different tastes, different likes, and different dislikes, the one thing that we have in common is that God is our Father and we are His forever family. And we celebrate that. What is our motto around here? The main thing is what, church? To keep the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing, is to stay focused on the main thing. But for the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesus, they were majoring on the minors. And Paul writes this to say, remember where you used to be, dead, without hope, without Christ, without God? Look where you are now. He says you've been brought near to God. You've been given peace. You've been given a brand new life. Look in verse 15. Having abolished the flesh, the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make himself of two, one new man. That's the family. So making peace. That is peace with God. That is peace with one another. Verse 16. And that he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Verse 17. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. And now you are therefore no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household 
of God. Of all that could be divisive, of all that could separate us, Paul would say, keep that main thing, the main thing, that we're part of God's family. And how beautifully it is pictured when we come around the communion table. Because whether we like one style of music or another, or whether we like the temperature hot or cold, or whether we like a particular style of preaching, all of that is secondary when we all come around the same table and as a family we take the same bread and as a family we take the same cup and recognize that it's not our individuality and it's not our way and get in our way all the time but it's the fact that God's our Father and we, we're, his, we're His family and we work together and we serve together and we love one another and we pray for one another and we support one another and that we, that we try to move forward as a church family with one another following God as our head. We're family. You see, when Jesus would give this to his men, this bread would be a representation, a symbol of his body that would be broken to keep them unified. And the cup would be a symbol of his blood that would be shed to keep them unified. So remember where you were without Christ, dead in trespasses and sins, without hope, without Christ, without God. Where are you now that you know the Lord? You have peace. You've been brought near to God. Every wall that would separate us has been torn down and we're now part of the family of God. That's our present. And then finally, look at our eternal future with God. If you're listening, say amen. We're going to close. Notice verse 19. He says, you're not strangers and foreigners any longer, but what are you? You're fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. You're built upon a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through your spirit. Paul is simply saying this, <clears throat> that <clears throat> the devil works to, to sow discord and to be divisive, as he was in the church at Ephesus. But what God's plan for his people is that we work together as the family of God and we are building, we are building this family. He likens it to a building here or to a, to a house, to a structure where God's going to live. And as we build His church, we're just simply making invitations for other people around the world, regardless of their background, regardless of, of, uh, of uh, their, uh, their race or their ethnicity, that everybody is invited to come and to be part of God's family. And what we're doing is we're building this, and we're growing His kingdom. Again, it's pictured beautifully in, in communion because you take those grapes that are individual grapes when they make the juice, and those grapes are crushed. And all of those juices become part of every other grape. And this grape becomes part of this one and this one of this one. And the juices are all mingled and you could never separate them again. They're all grape juice. And for the body of Christ, yes, we are individuals with different likes and dislikes. But the main thing, listen, is that, is that we've been mingled together as part of the family of God. And we see that, not in taking a divided body, but one that was given 
as a payment for our sinfulness. I said in the first service, told the story of one particular author who said that he was in a prison camp with 10,000 other prisoners, political prisoners. And he said they had no food and they had basically no water and um, they were treated very ill. And that um, a few of the people who were there were believers. They were Christians. And they wanted to have a communion service. They had no Bible. They had no bread. They had no juice. And this author wrote and he said, I think I've shared this with you before. He said, we just pretended. And he said, we put out our hand and said, this is my body that is broken for you. And someone would take from their hand, which was nothing there, and take that bread. This is my body broken for you. And that we had no cup and we had no juice, but that we would do the same to pretend that we had one and say, this is my blood that was shed for you. And he said, all the believers who were there, he said, we all took communion that way and we stood up and we embraced one another as the family of God. We are family. Family. 